This is Pastoring Out Loud, a podcast for snowy Bethlehem South Campus in snowy Lakeville, Minnesota. Are you interested in learning more about our snow-inundated church here in Lakeville, Minnesota? You go to Bethlehem.Church forward slash location forward slash south dash campus. Every time you say that address, I just think, wow, that is long. I know. Tinyurl.com. Got to figure that out. Do something to that effect. Dave, it's snowing. What's your favorite snow activity? Huh. Um, I would probably say just anything outside with the kids. Uh, snowball fights, football in the snow, sledding. That's kind of that's kind of what we do in the snow. I even, you know what? I even like to shovel and snowblow. I like to snowblow because there's this sense of like efficiency. Sure. That satisfies my ADHD slash maybe my mild OCD. Hmm. But uh, I don't know. So there's not. Do Do you ever want to build a snowman, Dave? Yeah, I do. A lot more since that song came out. That's a th- stop. <laughs> Stop. My daughter time. loves Frozen. So. Oh my gosh, the second time we've ne- mentioned uh, <laughs> Frozen on this podcast. Vibrant. <laughs> We're just never going to let that go. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of the old snowball fights. Um, used to have big ones in the neighborhood growing up. No little kids on our road, though, really, besides mine. So not a lot of, uh, not a lot of that going on. So maybe someday. We'll see. We'll see. So this particular podcast, uh, you know, this is November 12th, I think. Uh, we're actually going to do this on occasion. We're going to try to do, like, podcast listener podcasts. Is that a good way to say it, Dave? Podcast listener. Listener, listener mailbag, maybe? M- listener mailbag? Yeah, I like that. Listener mailbag. Uh, ask Pastor Dave, APD. APD. <laughs> APD. Uh, yeah. Or Daniel. It works for both of us. Sure, APD. That's fine. That's fine. So we've had a, a couple that have um, come in, one from a little bit ago, one that's um, very recent. Actually, we've had others come in as well. So I, I think it's our intent that on occasion, maybe once a month, something like that, we just stop and take some time to address questions um, that come in about various things. So uh, the first one, we got a, a, a an email from a parent who's asking a question uh, I think probably prompted a little bit by the fact that we've gone to weekly communion. Um, praise God. We're, we're happy for weekly communion. Obviously, the elders thought long and hard, prayed long and hard, studied long and hard about it. Um, but here's what uh, this parent is asking. Um, my question is about the appropriate age for communion. My two kids um, both seem to believe that they are sinners, and I think they're fully trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. I don't have them partake in communion, though. I guess I want to wait until they are older and they can affirm those beliefs publicly through baptism. Do you think that that's the correct approach? I don't want to wrongly deny them a means of grace, but I also don't want to cheapen communion by being presumptuous. Thanks. Uh, and then yeah, uh, they also mentioned the, the age of their two kids, pretty young, like mm-hmm. uh, early elementary age, um, kindergarten age. Um, first off, boss question, parent. That is a that is a really great way of yep. of just thinking and pressing through, um, and I think there's a there's a few things here that we could talk about, and maybe I'll tee them up, Dave, and you can jump in, and I'll I'll uh, after you breach the door, I'll come in behind you and sweep the room. So I, I think um, first is just kind of the 
the church historical perspective that it's relatively universal until maybe the last 200 years, the communion would come after baptism, Mm -hmm. whether in the early church with believers being baptized Mm -hmm. uh, in the early church, when they, we think erroneously baptized infants, um, you know, or later in church history up until the reformation, um, we don't really see examples of people partaking in communion before they've been baptized because uh, of a an understanding. And you can even go back and listen to the podcasts about baptism and communion. Baptism as the entrance into the family symbolically and communion as symbolically the continuance in the family, but not only symbols, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's one side of it. The other side of it is, is we do genuinely believe that somebody is in the covenant community by faith, yep. right? I was just reading this again uh, yesterday uh, or two days ago. Acts 15 is so shocking to me in this uh, this debate that they're having where Paul comes back and he's like, all these things have been happening among the Gentiles. And there's the Judaizers in Jerusalem that say like, you need to be circumcised. And Paul's retort and the retort of others there is not, you need to be baptized. It's if these Gentiles have been cleansed by faith, mm-hmm. like we have, not cleansed by baptism, yep. cleansed by faith, like we have, why should we not extend the you know fellowship to them? That's right. Um, which is like I, I think pretty. Uh, uh, if you're if you believe that baptism and circumcision um, are somehow aligned or closely aligned as old covenant, new covenant, um, maybe you know you read. Uh, Colossians and you see Colossians two and thoughts about circumcision baptism there. You say they're both very aligned. Well, I would just, here I am a Baptist pastor. Why don't they mention baptism in Acts 15 when they're saying Gentiles have to be circumcised? Mm -hmm. The response is just, Hey, they have to believe. So I think there's both sides. There's church history side. Hey, this is not normal, but we would also say that it's not, the, the symbols and these means of grace are not coextensive with what actually is happening in the heart or in the covenant. So that's my initial two reactions. Mm-hmm. Dave, where else would you go? What else would you talk about? I would say uh, one kind of stri- scriptural thing we see, and then maybe one, uh, one maybe here's the age we live in kind of thing as far as just applying wisdom in this question. So first I'd say as you read the New Testament, you will see uh, baptism very often as immediately following salvation. So I, I think in the in the New Testament church that we see, an unbaptized believer would have would have not been a category they were familiar with. And so so we just see throughout Acts, uh, believe and be baptized. You know, believe and be baptized. And yet then, like you said, there are, there are places where we see. Uh, just the call to repent, which if baptism was part of salvation, we would think, man, that's a really important thing you just left out. But I think instead what we're supposed to read is we're supposed to read, man, baptism is is coming right on the heels of salvation as the symbol. You're now a part of this covenant community. You're with us. It's a public dec- declaration. It's a seal of your faith by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we we really do see them so closely linked that you can't divide them, but they are different things. Salvation happens uh, on its own by faith, and then baptism ought to follow right up behind it. So, so I think I think that the, uh, 
In other words, the this dad's question is a good one because he's he's feeling that. I think they believe. You know what what prevents me from baptizing them? You know the the question of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then where I would bring in some some wisdom, even as I think about my own kids, I've got kids that are uh, you know ten, seven, four, and two, and uh, you know two of them. I I really would if I had to put my my cards down. I'd say I think they're trusting in Jesus. Um, I think what's a little bit different is just the 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 climate we're in. So that in in the New Testament, when you made this decision, you understood. Um, this could bring persecution, this could bring suffering, this could bring death, this could bring a lot of things that are really unpleasant, and there had to be a certain maturity, a certain lens in that. Whereas with my kids, in one sense, by God's grace, uh, just as common grace, there hasn't been a lot of uh, severe suffering for them as of yet for their faith. And so I, I, I think that I think that there's a the eagerness to want to see them baptized is good, and to want to see them take communion as a means of grace is good. And I think the wisdom of are they ready? You know, do I want this to happen yet is good. And I, I appreciate the way the question was formulated because I do think I would just agree with the person asking the question. Yeah, I think baptism should come first. I, I think that's. That's where we ought to go first before communion, uh, historically and biblically. And then you got to ask yourself the one question on baptism. That's kind of the next step. When do I do that? Yeah, so Dave, why don't we fence the table that way? So fencing the table is kind of the way in which we, we say, here's who should take this meal. Here's who shouldn't take this meal. We don't say at Bethlehem, if you're a baptized believer, mm-hmm. We say, if you're presently trusting in Christ by faith, this is a meal for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say in response to that question? I'd say that's a good question. But no, I, I think I think it's the right question <laughs> to ask with what I just said. And I would say um, what I just said about baptism and communion would be the ideal uh, path forward in a sense. What, what, what we would see as the normative pattern and yet... Um, if we have someone, let's say we have a, a, a someone who's been a believer for 30 years who's sitting in the congregation one Sunday, and they've not yet been baptized as a believer, but they do, they trust in Jesus Christ, uh, we don't want to deprive them of that means of grace that we see is happening in communion. We want to, those who are trusting Jesus by faith to take that with us. So maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a distinction to be, be made between normative, ideal, uh, best and just sometimes that doesn't happen and, and we we make provision for that we don't want to be so narrow that we would deprive someone yeah and I think also there's a way in which it's it's a little bit what do you see the communion table as uh-huh. is the communion table only strictly for our fellowship and blood fam- our expression of the blood family um, to say like hey here's us partaking together or is there a sense in which people from other traditions can come and also partake? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, historically, Baptists have made pretty big distinctions about you've not been baptized, you ought not partake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think there's a spot for the table being an expression of unity mm-hmm. broader than just mm-hmm. our own fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so in some sense, I think it's kind of like there's a conscience thing. 
uh, about like two kids that um, they that we think are believing. And then also, I think there's just the church history and what appears to be normative to mm-hmm. some degree, mm-hmm. just like, hey, um, uh, communion follows on the heels of baptism, typically. So which is... Be- because communion follows on the heels of faith, yeah, historically. And then yeah. what we see in the New Testament again is baptism was often right away, yeah. right after. That's our first question. Um, glad for that one. Uh, some that we That's wrestled a good through. At, yeah, at Bethlehem, <laughs> you know, we typically start asking the question normatively. There's that word again. <laughs> about the time a child is 11, about middle school age, um, and we're having classes and doing other things like that. But if your child is younger and you want to hear more, or just um, we want to even have more of a robust even examination and thinking about um, where your child is at for any parent listening. Um, the elders would love to talk to you yeah, and love to, to, um, yeah, wrestle through some of those things with you. So Dave, the second question that we received is actually right on the heels of your sermon this last Sunday Mm -hmm. about uh, the most important election of the apostles lifetime. Um, (laughs) is that, is that fair to say? Sure. Sure. So the most important election of the apostles lifetime, uh, between, um, two potential successors to Judas. And the question we received was, why? essentially, why did there need to be 12 apostles? Um, why was it necessary that Judas be replaced? Uh, is there a symbolic reason? Is there some other biblical reason? Um, why, why don't you tee this one up for us, Dave? And uh, like I said, I'll sweep the room afterwards. Sweep afterward. the room afterwards, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think, I mean, there's a few different ways to approach it. Um, you know, the answer I gave <laughs> in the sermon, which obviously left left some people wanting, um, was uh, the Bible said there would be. <laughs> you know? um, this one of them would, would go astray and then another would take their office. Um, so, we, so we see, you know, we just see that the scripture had to be fulfilled. And in some ways, uh, that's, you know, that's the foundational reason. I would even want to go back to and say God said it and, and uh, so it had to happen. Um, another way to see it is just to see it. Um, I think I think there is symb- symbolism. There is typology. We actually see these twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, you know, all the way back in Genesis forty-nine, we see a trajectory of these twelve tribes and a, a description of kind of what's going to happen with all of them there. Uh, you know, even even with the line of Christ described there, and then we see it show up again in in Revelation and with the twelve with the 12 tribes <laughs> and the thrones there. And in between those, you know, we even go to Luke uh, 22, and uh, Jesus is talking to them in verses 28 to 30, and he says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. So we've talked about that idea of kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, even in those verses, we get the sense that, man, there's this future reality that Jesus is going to call them to and sitting on these thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, you have stayed with me in my trials, but we know uh, they didn't all stay with him. So we know we know there's going to be an empty seat here and that that's going to have to be filled. So th- I think there's this meta storyline of the kingdom of God. Meta? Storyline, meta storyline, okay, meta narrative, meta storyline. Story. Meta story B- bigger, however you say it, bigger, overarching, overarching. 
That sounds meta. Sorry. Meta. Go ahead. <laughs> that 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 runs through the Bible about the kingdom, and and is it, this is again God's people in God's place under God's rule and uh, with God's presence, and so we see the twelve tribes and these twelve apostles who are then going to kind of step into that role as representatives of that that continuing narrative yeah. throughout the story. Yeah. So you see twelve being symbolic of God's people throughout like the number 12 being symbolic of God's people throughout uh, really the biblical storyline 12 tribes of Israel are a big deal one tribe Joseph is split into two and then you even see and so my, my answer to this question would be there's patterns in God's world yep. the the theological term for it is typology yep. there's a there are patterns that we see repeated over and over and over again um, I think you could even say that there's a pattern here with Judas mm-hmm. being rejected, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we fast forward to Revelation mm-hmm. 7 and the, the um, 12,000 mm-hmm. from the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's one tribe that's not there. Mm-hmm. This is not the historic list of all the tribes of Israel. Like whatever else you might think about, whether this is literal, symbolic, other things like that, or if there's a blending of literal and symbolic here, like the tribe of Dan is not there. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis, you know, taught for a, a long time in Second Temple Judaism, talking about the rejection of Dan by God um, for idolatry and other things like that. And so uh, I think personally that there's a connection between, in God's patterns, between like a rejection of Judas and former rejection of God by to, uh, of Dan. Um so you fast forward to, I think you alluded to it, mm-hmm. Revelation um, chapter 21, and we see this, I think it is symbolic picture of the new Jerusalem that looks like a, a giant cube. And why does it look like a giant cube? Because the layout of the temple and the tabernacle before it was the Holy of Holies was a cube, except... Now there is no separation between the Holy of Holies and the rest of creation. Like Mm. all of creation is being filled with the glory of God. So in Revelation 21, um, verse 12, Mm -hmm. speaking of the the New Jerusalem, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and at the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Mm. So part of the fittingness and this pattern in God's world is the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, 12 represented the people of God throughout all this time. And it was necessary in God's pattern and God's world that there be 12 apostles who would both judge the 12 tribes and represent God's new covenant people as well. Yep. Um, so this, this most significant election of the apostles' lifetime mm-hmm. actually has so much more significance when you look at eschatology, end times theology, mm-hmm. and what it means for there to be 12 apostles it's ne- it was necessary, brothers, mm-hmm. that Judas fall, mm-hmm. and it's also necessary that somebody replace him. Not just simply this one-to-one correlation mm-hmm. from a specific verse 
up, but that's bigger than that. It's necessary because of these patterns in God's world that he's created. So I'll ask you a follow-up question. Hit me. That sometimes uh, I've gotten, I've talked that way about things. So then what do we do with... Which, which way? What, when, when, when we say there's this pattern of 12, it's representative sure. of God's people, new covenant people. So what do I, what do, I do with Paul? What's up with Paul? Because wouldn't he be 13? Yeah, I had a uh, I had a <laughs> professor in a class one time, not at Bethlehem, elsewhere, um, basically say that the apostles made a mistake in Acts 1 because they should have waited for Paul mm-hmm. to show up. That's a, that's a view out there yeah, in the commentaries yeah, even. Yep, yep. So I think there's a way in which um, apostleship, as far as that's concerned, um, that there's not always capital A apostleship in the early New Testament. Like he uses the word apostles for he and Barnabas, and Barnabas is not one of the 12 in Acts 14. So there's a way in which like the, the term apostleship definitely gets used for like 12, and then the word apostleship gets used beyond the 12 in a particular way. And I do think Paul is really unique. He's seen the resurrected Christ on the, uh, on the road to Damascus. Um, he's uh, been carried up into the third heaven, the third heaven yeah. and where he's been, re- things have been revealed to him in really unique ways. And I don't think he's numbered among the 12. Hmm. Uh, I don't think he's numbered among the 12 in that way. Um, but yet he's a very unique person that bears the title of apostle, but not one of the 12. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Is that how you'd respond? Yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to respond. You know, I read, I read some things as I studied, uh, last week where they dealt with this a little bit too. And, and some people would also make the case that, uh, it was a good thing for outside of the 12, which kind of has represented the people of God, but specifically always has been tied to Israel in some ways as a nation, that there would be an apostle who would also be representative of the work of God among the Gentiles as well. Um, and uh, and who was a Jew? That would, that would be a representative kind of tying the two together. So that was another uh, thing I read as I studied. Um, that, who knows? I think I think they both could have some bearing there what do you think about that yeah me for sure yeah 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 sure i'm with you all right i'm with you that was compelling in some ways to me as i read it yeah all right dave i think that's all for our first mailbag we think yeah i think so all right thanks so much for writing and if there are other questions you guys have anybody has you know feel free uh i know dave is on facebook all the time yep. never endingly shoot him a facebook message Shoot us an email, drop us a snap, send us an Instagram. I don't know how to use that yet, but yeah, I don't send use Instagram very much. Yeah, yeah. Send the Bethlehem South Youth Group an Instagram, and we'll respond uh, as we can. Thanks for joining us today.